0: Welcome to uh, another episode of Dialogues. I'm pleased today to be talking to Nick Clegg, who's the Vice President uh, for Global Affairs and Communications at Facebook. I've known Nick a long time, he's a friend and he was actually my boss for a while when he was serving as Deputy Prime Minister in the UK's coalition government in in 2010. Um, Facebook's just made a huge decision to ban Donald Trump for two years since January the 6th, and that's because of his uh, awful involvement in the events of that terrible day, and has also outlined some guidelines for how the platform, how the company is going to manage public figures who use the platform to do harm uh, in in the future. So we really dig into the the what, the why, and the how of of that decision. Uh, But we're also talking about that in light of broader conversations about the threats to open societies from populism and authoritarianism and the retreat from from reason, how you balance free speech and protection from harm and how private companies are now having to do that for themselves. We inevitably invoke John Stuart Mill, perhaps, along the way there. We talk about the need for regulation of these social media giants and how they're calling for it, what kind of regulation would be appropriate we also touch on the relative merits of life in California versus the House of Commons, the way that the kind of early days of techno-optimism, which are easy to forget now, have curdled into techno-pessimism, really kind of the pendulum swung very strongly the other way. And what Nick argues is that we need to find a, what he calls a reasonable position, which recognizes both the potential but also the perils of these new uh, technologies it was a pretty broad ranging conversation which i really enjoyed and I, i hope you do too
1: Nick Clegg, welcome to Dialogues. It's lovely to be with you on your podcast, Richard.
0: Well, it's a it's a real privilege actually that you've come on, Nick. We've known each other a long time. I worked for you yeah. in, in, in government. We've argued about liberalism for a long time, and you know there there you are out in in California, having switched the frying pan for the fire, I guess, in terms of you know yeah. some of the issues that you're facing. But just before we, I want to. Hit, it's a while since we've spoken. How how is American and Californian life treating you right now?
1: Well, good. Obviously, it's a lovely place to live. I would never have expected a few years ago when I was in the sort of Harry Potter sort of hammer beam roof world of Westminster that I'd be in the sort of sunny, gleaming center of of Silicon Valley, um, aged fifty-four and working in a big tech company. When I'm not, I don't think I'd ever claim I was. I'm a great techie myself. Um, So it's yeah. So it's one of those really unexpected turns in life and of course it's as as you know it's in a sense the contrast couldn't be bigger because you know Westminster politics uh, and politics generally in in Europe and certainly perhaps in the UK which I'd inhabited for close to 20 years is a pretty um it's pretty cynical world and it's also quite a pessimistic one it's sort of whereas of course California is almost the direct opposite people are very optimistic about the future and you know, all the best things are ahead, and, and people are quite earnest about it as well. So that you sort of—it's a, quite a jump from a from a world of pessimism and cynicism to one of of, of optimism and earnestness. It's a it's a very interesting change. Yeah,
0: it, it takes some getting used to, that doesn't it? The kind of earnestness. So of, you you you. Sometimes when Americans say something to you, you think. They're obviously kidding. Like when, they're, when they say to you something like, you are so great at that, or this is a fantastic idea, we should definitely do this. You look at them yeah. and say.
1: Or, or the, the world is definitely going to be X, Y, Z, and then you sort of chuckle, thinking, well, no one's surely going to make such a Olympian assumption about the future of the world. <laughs> I know. I but, know. It's, but it's very, of course, it's very refreshing because it, it uh, certainly, as I say, from the world I came from, and I think Britain, we probably don't want to get waylaid on this, but Britain at the moment, I think, is a country that unfortunately is going through one of its bouts of sort of reveling uh, or wallowing, and, in a way that about about its own past, really. Um, whereas, you know, the one thing about the West Coast of the US is you're you're facing the the Pacific, not the Atlantic. You're facing the future. Not you know, everything here looks as if it was built last Tuesday. Um, it's it's a very dramatic but very refreshing change. Well, also
0: for me, anyway, knowing you a bit as I do it, for me, it's not such a a big change. I think a lot of people are like, okay, so as you say, Nick Clegg, not not a known technologist, uh, not a natural Californian. But I think because I know you a little bit better, in some ways I I see it as a natural progression. One, because you've always been very interested in technology Mm. and you've always been very interested in progress and you've always had a future orientation i think in some ways that comes with your liberalism i remember we used to do work on what would it mean to be an open society what what are the values of openness and democracy and so on which i think really are at your core and so whilst in some ways it seems like parliament eu yeah. versus yeah. california it's like what's he doing there in some ways i think it fits with your personality in some better in some ways and i think the fusty old EU yeah. or, or UK, if I can be
1: rude for a moment. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, I, th- I well, it's, it's, not, it's, it's good of you to say so. I, I, I think that is broadly right. I mean, remember um, when I um, left government or was booted out of government, whichever sure you, you want to put it, um, by, the, by the grateful voters of the United Kingdom in 2015, and while I was still in Parliament uh, until I lost my seat in 2017. I think one of the first thing, well, one of the first things I did was to set up a, a small think tank called Open Reason. I called it Open Reason. Of course, at that time I had no idea I was going to end up working in um, in California in the tech sector, but I did did so because, yeah, I've always believed you know, when when confronted by this very fundamental choice about whether you're open or whether you're closed, whether you're trying to kind of Pull up the drawbridge and, and and indulge in a protectionist reflex, or try and remain open to, to the world and open to new challenges. I've always believed that openness generally is a better spur to human progress, and also that reason, which is of course you know, uh, I, I think a much um, it's a, it's a, an enlightenment value that we take too readily for granted. I certainly am of a generation, my mid fifties, where. Well, and of course, this was given a, a real turbo boost in 1989 with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and you know Francis Fukuyama declaring the end of history. And I remember this this frothy sense of oh, of unbridled kind of joy that the future would bring. There'd be no more ideological division. There'd no be there no longer be this kind of irrational threat of a nuclear war. We would all inhabit this seamless globe where everybody was. Living and working happily together in mixed economies with good welfare provision and and dynamic, um, dynamic private sectors and so on. Boy, has that dream uh, curdled? And one of the things that's curdled with it is a respect for reason and expertise and rationality. And it's now actually elevated in politics. I mean, famously in, in in our, you know, in the United Kingdom, famously campaigners for for Britain's departure from the European Union said, you know, we've had enough of experts. We don't want to listen to reason anymore. So I, I so I, I, mean, I call that think tank open reason because I actually think openness and reason are things that certainly my generation, as I say, especially around that apex moment of the, of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, 1989 and all of that, and that, of course, ushered in the heyday of supranational governance in the European Union and this idea that there was this sort of rational, reasoned approach to governments working together. That's all curdled massively now. And we're now, of course, in an age of protectionism, chauvinism, populism. And, yeah, for some reason that I can't quite put my finger on, Silicon Valley, it's not – look, I'm not going to pretend that everybody here is is, is open and reasonable. That's, that's, that That would be wildly over-romanticising. And, boy – are there plenty of things that, that, that Silicon Valley needs to, to ask itself and, and, and reform, and so on? But it is based on this idea that tomorrow is better than today, and today is better than yesterday, and that technology, properly harnessed at the service of society, is a force for good. And I, I've always believed that. And in fact, I think when you and I worked together, I remember fighting a, an aggressive rearguard action to stop the then British government. From from clamping down on, on on modern technologies in a way that um, I believe and I believe then and still do now would actually inhibit the openness that communication to- technologies bring about. So yeah, it does feel perhaps perhaps I'm inventing this a bit, but it does feel there's a bit of a straight line or a, a sort of wavy line from one to the other. But there's there's uh,
0: maybe it looks like a wavy line from the outside, but I think there's a pretty straight line in terms of your values and approach. And as you said, you, your your ideal of a democratic internet was. Was there when we were working in, in government together? When I was working for you, I think that you, you use the word reasonable along with reason, and and I think that that's very often what's missing in this debate. So you talked about the sort of wild utopianism that we saw after eighty nine, yeah. but also the kind of tech utopianism that there was. Yeah. Uh, and I think you try- and then there was a sort of, and then it swung pretty wildly to dystopian. Right, so we've gone from end of history, everything's great, the internet's going to democratize everything right. to liberalism's dead, populism's rampant, the internet's killing everything. And so the sort of time elapsed between utopianism and dystopianism seems pretty limited. And so the idea of being reasonable. It's not just about using reason. It's also about trying to avoid that kind yeah. of oscillation between yeah. this extreme, either everything's, it's either heaven or hell. It's either utopia yeah. or dystopia.
1: No, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. The, 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 the um, possibly one of the more unfashionable things I often say to people is I worry as much about the tech lash as the problems that it's purporting to try and remedy. Uh, I really do think there's a real risk that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And and as you say, we've gone, I mean, this happens, by the way, every time there is major disruptive technological innovation, whether it's the car, whether it's the email, whether it's radio, whether it's television, whether it's the bicycle. I mean, you can literally, you know, there there are historians of technology which will show to you that every single time there is a period, firstly, of Unbridled naive tech euphoria, tech utopianism, and then it swings suddenly and violently to of tech pessimism, and um, that pendulum swing, which you've seen with previous technological uh, changes, has, has happened very violently um, in recent years. Perhaps most especially applied to social media, and then within that, most especially to Facebook, given Facebook's. Just explosive growth. It's only 15, 16 years old, for heaven's sake. It's extraordinary. It's now serving a third of the world population. It's, it's just bonkers when you just think about how quickly this has evolved. And and you know, formerly people like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, and others were treated like rock stars. They could do no wrong. They walked on water. They were the, they they had the solution to all our problems. And now it's violently swung the other way. And now there's literally not a problem. You know, but between between. You know, heaven and earth, which isn't somehow apparently the fault of Silicon Valley and social media, from from adolescent mood swings to to to, to, to you know to climate change to so the wrong outcome in an election or a referendum, um, to, to 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 you know to bad people saying bad things to each other. Now, there are, that doesn't mean there aren't heavy responsibilities which social media companies need to shoulder, and that's in a sense the bread and butter of my work is is to ensure that we put in the guardrails, which weren't there at the outset. They never are when new technologies are born. And there are always mistakes uh, uh, en route to finding that right balance. But I do think at the moment um, it's become almost unchallenged now to just say ever more hyperbolic things about how – all you need to do these days is is use the word social media, algorithm, AI, and – Big tech. And and big tech. And and. Maybe throw in a few adjectives about evil, bad, damage, end of life and democracy. You know it. Chuck that all in, stir it in a pot, produce it in an article, and hey, presto, you you're you're given extensive coverage. Now, some of it, as I say, is, is both well-intentioned and some of it is, is perfectly legitimate. But a lot of it, I think, has now become imprecise um, uh, and so unqualified that we are now confusing sometimes cause with symptom. We're 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 and we're forgetting that if you want technology to serve society rather than the other way around, instead of just yelling ever more, ever more in an ever more heated manner at the problem, you've got to get your hands dirty and try and do something about that. And you know, in my book, for instance, people quite rightly say that companies like Facebook have got too much power. Right, okay, let's do something about it. I think we can give users more power. I think companies like Facebook can devolve more power. I think, yes, of course there needs to be law and regulation. And so one of the reasons if there is any Further connection, that wavy line between my past and my present, is I've I've always been a little impatient with people who think it's just sufficient to shout at a problem. It's exactly the same in politics. I never understood why people wanted to just do the easy bit in politics, which is to stand on the sidelines and just yell at something. It's it's always better, it seems to me, to try and get your hands dirty and do something about that. However, you know, however, um, however imperfect that sometimes is, And and I think that's the journey we're going through now. Trying to reconcile these these extraordinarily powerful new communication technologies with societal uh, uh, needs and demands, and and I, you know I don't think I don't think we'll know for a few years yet how successful we're going to be. But my my hope, and that's certainly part of what animates me and, and drives me in this work, is that we don't end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and that we do we do retain I think the magic of these communication technologies, which are allowing people on an unprecedented scale to express themselves, when they like, to whom they like, how they like. And I think that is a, I remain, I have a most childlike wonder that we, that, that we can do that now, that we can just express ourselves to other people just like that, seamlessly, from one moment to the next. It's just, it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, some of the some of the positives, you're right, uh, have been lost a bit in this sort of radical pendulum swing, and we're going to get we'll get into some of that uh, in a bit more detail. But the way I think about this is that there, there are a lot of problems, public policy problems. For, you could think about public health problems, obesity, or climate change, and so on. Where sometimes there's always a search for the villain. There's always a search for a simple solution. It's like someone's like, ah, you know, that's that's whose fault it is. And what that means is there isn't this idea of shared responsibility. I think is yeah. one of the first casualties of this war of rhetoric you've talked about, which is the idea that, look, this is nobody's fault, but it's everybody's responsibility, and so you've got to do your bit. You've got, to, we've got to do our bit. So, like to take this example, have have tech companies like yours got to do a better job? Absolutely. Are they? Are you catching up with yourselves? Absolutely. Do the legislators need to? put in place regulation absolutely do users need to take responsibility for how they're using it and parents and so on absolutely do civic institutions need that like, so do politicians need to be careful how they use the social media and the answer to that is yes 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 and yes but the idea of this this is a problem for all of us and sh- it's, it's true for so many public policy problems i think it's the same with climate change well that's the fossil companies or it's obesity is the individual's fault or it's the Co- or it's Coke's fault. Or it's whoever's yeah. fault. It's like, it's a game of pass the parcel, basically. That's a very British reference. But, you know, it's like, and yeah. hoping that it doesn't stop in your lap. It's like, so Congress helps it to you. And then the danger is yeah. you hop it to somebody, or you blame the individual. And, and so we're not everyone saying, Look, okay, we're 5%, 10% responsible. But so are you. And so are you. And yeah. so are you. That's, that's what gets lost, I think, in this debate.
1: Yes. Of course it does. Because it's complex. What you've just described, it's complex. It means the shared responsibility. It means that everyone has a role. It means that there isn't one organizing and malign intelligence, uh, which is driving this. Which of course, it, 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 It's so much simpler, isn't it? If you just say it's one person's fault because they're malign and they deliberately screwed things up on behalf of the rest of us, because then you know who your foe is. And everything then just falls effortlessly into place. And it makes great television and it makes great newspaper articles. It means you can produce, you know, there was that Netflix documentary, which was very entertaining, but it was it was a ludicrous caricature. This idea of people in kind of Star Trek suits pulling levers in our neural pathways and making us feel, think, and do things as if you were just totally passive, totally passive sort of hapless agents being run by dastardly characters in Silicon Valley who are who who've eliminated all human agency. And of course, it's not nearly as simple as that, unfortunately. Social media in particular is actually a really interesting interaction between your choices, your volition, what you want to express, the friends you have, the groups you have and the automated systems that are then receiving those signals and then responding to them—a totally legitimate, by the way, debate about whether those signals are d- designed in a transparent enough manner, whether they're designed to reward um, a positive, wholesome behavior rather than bad—and you know that's sure. where you get into the whole, into the whole depiction of algorithmic content systems as if they're sort of just simply deliberately spoon-feeding, you know, nasty, poisonous content to people. There's no evidence that's the case, but that's the allegation. Um, but but this is this is the thing. It's an interaction. It's an interaction between human and machine. And if we just simply resort to, I think, sort of crass finger pointing and saying this has to be because some greedy monopolistic technologist has somehow managed to burrow into our brains to make us do and say and feel think feel things that we wouldn't otherwise. I just think weirdly, it kind of. What it does is it absolves us all mm. of the complexity of trying to work out how we make these technologies work for society as a whole, because it, it, it just puts one person or one entity on the naughty step and means that everybody else can simply sort of sit back and just yell at it. And, I, it, it, you know, I, I just think self-evidently, it just seems to be so flamely obvious, that's not the way you make progress. It's not the way you make societal progress. It's not the way you make political or technological progress either
0: there's a historical coincidence of course which is the rise of social media has coincided with this this outburst of populist politics and a bunch of bad stuff happening politically and so it's very easy to you know take a correlation and make a causation and and anyway suggesting that there that there isn't there aren't hard questions, and we'll get to some of those, but I think sure. there's a sort of panic. 2016 in particular was like, you know, everyone panicked. It's like, what the hell has happened? Yeah. You know, every organization, Brookings just went, what the hell? Everyone went, what the hell? What's happened? Same with Brexit. And so there's this sort of panic in the commentariat and a panic in the, yeah. you know, the broadly elite. And it's like, what the hell just happened? And they're looking around for kind of what's new. And they're like, oh, well, this social media thing is new. And so there was a tendency, I think, to look for yeah. a kind of – Sim- simple, solu- simple answers to these very difficult questions that were being posed by the rise of populism, and in that sense, you just came into the crosshairs at exactly yeah. the right moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are lots of strands to this. I mean, one of the things is that um, we have seen over the last twenty years this this very um, interesting evolution of, um, I mean, it really was the sort of age of globalization. From 1989 through to, I mean, I can't put can't put a precise date on it, but I think I think that span of time from 1989 to 2008 will be will be looked back on perhaps as a time of unprecedented openness and globalization. And in a sense, social media, and perhaps Facebook in particular, is the is the sort of it's the epitome of globalization. I can share a photo with my nephew in Hong Kong, who can then share it with their Friend in Australia who can ping it back to my sister in Oxfordshire in the United Kingdom, and we can all be on the same, you know, on the same, um, you know, inhabiting the same communication space, and we can do that for free because it's paid for by advertising. So, in a sense, what you're seeing, I think, since 2008, is 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 the rise of anti-globalisation in politics, or almost de-globalisation in politics, and 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 so. Companies like Facebook are, are colliding with the political spirit of the times. If you look at Modi, Trump, Orban, I mean, you know, just the list goes on. Bolsonaro, that the, the, the mm. nativist politics is doing exceptionally well at the moment. And there are good reasons for that, because globalization hasn't served people, a lot of people well. 2008 was a terrible hammer blow to the kind of small, liberal world economic order. Um, and so I think you're seeing a backlash against globalization generally and part of that also is a backlash against the technologies which epitomise globalisation. And the second one of the other strands is not. This is not an exhaustive list. Is the one that you refer to, which is that, you know, the 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 elite, particularly the the the, the sort of opinion forming political and media elite, have been very used for for generations to being basically the gatekeepers of what is considered to be acceptable or not acceptable speech, to define basically the parameters of public discourse. And suddenly, you've got these technologies where people are saying, "Well, sod that! I'm going to I'm going to develop my own discourse." And instead of having, you know, a front page in every newspaper handed down somewhat paternalistically by an editor, and then mm-hmm. handed, you know, off off the presses to, to to millions of people across the country, everybody has their own front page. That's the that's the extraordinary mm-hmm. thing of social media. Every single news feed of Facebook is like a fingerprint. It's your own. It's your own. Front page composed of your choices and the reflexes from the automated systems that rank what you see first, and so you 've got this enormous disaggregation of power actually from from opinion forming elites particularly political and media elites and guess what <laughs> they don 't like it of course they don 't like it why, why would you particularly when your business model is also disrupted because then advertising has moved from from print to, to online, so you've also got you've also got this huge challenge to a, an elite-driven, somewhat more paternalistic um, uh, viewpoint uh, to something which is much harder to control, and that's why you now see you you see you see you see either elite responses in you see it here in the United States you see it amongst the coastal elites who are often the ones who are most vituperative in expressing their kind of you know their, their support for the back the tech lash. Uh, but you also see it in th- authoritarian governments or semi-authoritarian governments who want to clamp down on this disorganized freedom that, that these communication technologies have afforded people. So I think, you know, that all of that, I can't stress enough, I keep having to add the qualifications. doesn't mean that mistakes weren't made. does not mean that these companies don't have heavy responsibilities, which arguably they have not discharged properly. doesn't mean you, there shouldn't be regulation, all of that. But I do think we also need to kind of, in a sense, call a spade a spade and understand that some of the tech lash, is driven by some good old-fashioned and somewhat elitist vested interests who just don't like the fact that the information uh, universe that they're inhabiting is no longer one that simply acts at their beck and call.
0: Well, and of course, one thing that you are, you do have long experience of is being attacked from both the left and the right with equal levels oh, of yeah. Vitriol. I mean, the coalition was great, great <laughs> training. You like,
1: yeah, she liked everybody from both sides, right? It but
0: it also, I mean, along with the pessimism, and I, and I obviously there are vested interests on all sides here, but there is a degree of paternalism, and I, I just will link to this in the show notes. But your piece on Medium, which I think was like your long piece, very much you actually in in your voice about the kind of raucous, messy world that's created by the democratization of of information and so on, and I and I think. Uh, one i know we should probably move on to some of the decisions you've just been having to make about free mm-hmm. speech and so on but but i i do think that there's a, there's an unspoken paternalism that lies behind some of this there's a sort of presumption of passivity in the recipient there's the presumption that people just don't know what's good for them that they're going to be easily manipulated etc and of course and we'll get to this but people can be manipulated we are weak you know we <laughs> are but, but that's That's the tension between liberal and paternalist views of the world since time immemorial, which is, look, in the end, how much trust do you put in the individual to get the skills and the knowledge they need? And and as you say in the medium piece, give them more power, tame their algorithm, let them decide how they want to use it. And and, and so I do think that there's a fundamental philosophical divide here, which is both left and right have ended up with. In some ways, and you say this in the piece, quite a, a, a pessimistic view about human nature and the capacity of people to adapt to these changes and to to run it themselves. And that's that, as I said, that's as old as the hills. You know, the argument yeah. of paternalism is as old as the hills. And I think you, you really go into that. I think in your piece.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think there is an almost perfect correlation between those people who believe that modern communication technologies, most especially social media, are are net very bad for society and those who believe that individuals are somehow hapless and passive and are unable to control their own experience there's a there's a sort of an assumption of almost sort of bovine passivity about the human being that we're just that we're just all and my experience is thankfully that's not actually how most people live their own lives I mean and by the way, especially young people. I mean, young people are super smart. Yes. About the way they use. It. I mean, I see it with my own kids. You know, yeah, they mine, mine too. They, 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 use, they use different apps in different ways. They mix and match. They've got a much clearer nose for stuff that's basically crap. They, they, they you know, and and I just and if you read some of the way that people talk about how um, you know technology needs to be broken up smashed up controlled because we need we need to tell people we, we need to we need to make sure that people can only consume healthy information and and wholesome information and um and it's kind of like well whoa 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 who decides what is wholesome who decides what's good and bad who decides who decides what's harm even that is a difficult one even that's a difficult one i mean you've now got you know just to make sure that this is not an unduly sort of US-centric conversation, because by the way, I work for a company, nine out of 10 of our users are outside the US. I should think about 95% of the debate is about the US, but actually 90% or more of our users are outside the US. And in, and in the country in which we hail from, the UK, you've got this bizarre spectacle of a UK government in a country which used to be the bastion of free expression in Europe, and always the country that was first to resist sort of dirigiste interventionist regulation when it affects human speech, being the first government in Europe, in fact, I think the first government in the democratic world, as far as I can make out, to table legislation so that in law, social media companies would have to inhibit and act on what is loosely called harmful content, even though it's perfectly legal perfectly legal speech and it's like wow that's a like who who, wow that's a that's a leap across the rubicon so now we're going to pass laws to say in a rather imprecise way that private companies should in effect be censoring content even though it's perfectly legal and not that there aren't good you know good good reasons and and we'll come in a minute to the good old-fashioned j.s. mill harm principle which i think is actually a very valuable principle in all of this but but it's it's amazing how quickly, as part of this tacklash, I think that we have jettisoned in this debate some some guardrails against kind of incursions on free expression. And of course the great irony is that the people who are often advocating this most avidly are the very vested interests in the traditional press who who, who have of course ferociously rejected any regulation which might um in any way, you know, clip their wings as far as free expression is concerned. But it's okay to clip free expression when it's on the online world, but somehow it isn't on the, so much so, for instance, in the UK example, that the draft uh, legislation at the UK government's table explicitly says that none of those provisions apply to traditional journalism. So it's really interesting. We're, we're, applying, we're not applying even standards on some fairly fundamental principles of free expression. Um, uh, and I think that is that has understandable origins, but also has some pretty worrisome implications going forward.
0: Mm. And I think it's because some of those institutions, they see themselves as mediating. They're, they're the mediating institutions that are curating and channeling and, uh, and so on to, to overcome this problem of people kind of being manipulated. But I think the... Right now, the way I'd characterize this situation is you've got got the established centers of knowledge production whose processes are opaque. Like who the hell knows what's going on in in the editorial room? And I've been in journalism, but like who knows who's deciding what goes on the opinion pages or how they've decided and so on. And some of what we see doesn't look great. And then you've got what have up until now been quite opaque algorithms deciding what I see on the front page of my uh, mm-hmm. Facebook page mm-hmm. or whatever too. And so you've yeah. got sort of two opacities. You've got an uh, established opacity, which yes. is, you know, and then you've got a new opacity, which is what the hell is an algorithm? How does that work? And yeah. between between the two, the second seems scarier because like because it's new. And so I think if you win the transparency battle, right, which I think is right. what you're pushing towards, I know if I know what the algorithm is doing and I can change it. So if oh, you and
1: de- oh, mis- crucially I, I, I can override it um you know this is one of the reasons i wrote wrote the piece you alluded to is you know you can now on facebook just override the algorithm if you want to if you want to either chronologically order your feed or 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 compose it yourself become a curator yourself and decide i want you know i only want to share these pages and posts and so on you can you 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 can you can compose your own menu And, and i and where i really want to push this is even further towards individual control and agency and, and individual power. So, I, I really hope in the next period of time, you'll see Facebook actually becoming a pioneer in saying, okay, Richard Reeves, you want to see more politics here? You can turn this dial up. You want to see less cooking? You can turn that dial down. You want to see more sport? You can t- turn that dial up. Quite how granular we can make those dials, I don't know. But the, the, the more we can empower you and, 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 and people who use social media so they don't feel that they're sim- somehow just subject haplessly, to something which is going on in the boiler room of of, of Silicon Valley. Uh, That's that's one one of the key steps, I think, to make sure that people feel they're properly empowered rather than disempowered. The other ways are governments have got to, and legislators have got to just sort of stop... Stop talking the talk, actually walk the walk and, and 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 actually enshrine legislation, though, as I just alluded to earlier, there are some dangers in, in, in the way they might plan to do it. But nonetheless, I think it, that has to happen. And secondly, I think just devolving power away from these companies, which is one of the reasons why one of the first things I did when I arrived at Facebook at, at Mark Zuckerberg's request was create, create and help establish this oversight board, which is the first of its kind, a totally independent Entity which which can basically well it does hand down rulings which Facebook has to abide by. Um, I, th- I think all of that all of that is all about transparency, accountability, uh, uh, and and making sure that that as you say, people don't feel that they're somehow which is the caricatured sort of cardboard cutout depiction that they're somehow um, completely helpless.
0: So that's a good that's a good t- time to turn. I think to the big decision you've just had t- to make. Uh, about president trump but first of all i want to quote from the the new york post uh had uh, a line about you and about the facebook decision about president trump which was as follows what was the point of the american revolution if some aristocratic british nerd can describe which americans get to speak and i want to say on behalf of our home country how outrageous that statement is everybody knows nick that you're not an aristocrat
1: (laughs) no no all the
0: rest is fair comment
1: <laughs> nor, nor fully british either I mean, with, 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 a, with a dutch mum and a half russian dad but um nor nor have i ever I mean, the various the torrents of abuse i've received from tabloids over the years i've never been called a nerd before i'm actually quite proud of that one i mean nerd nerd has a sort of techie has a sort of techie quality to it doesn't it so i think,
0: well, no, i mean look i'm a, I'm, oh, I'm i'm right. a bro- i'm a brook i'm a brookings bro- bro- so like you know nerd, nerd is nerd is great i actually, think it's because it i think could, it's could good. have to you richard and it could be a very good title for
1: this podcast how about that or a nerd.
0: subtitle nerd I think it's because um, of the knighthood. I think as soon as you you know people don't understand over here how the aristocracy works so they assume oh, that because right. you picked them they don't realize yeah. that knighthoods are not quite dime a dozen but
1: no, they're not they're not nearly as <laughs> special <laughs> as they might but,
0: but let's um, let's talk about this decision um that you've just made. Uh, obviously you've been waiting for this a long time since the oversight board kicked it back to you mm. uh, six months ago now I guess after your decision to indefinitely ban President Trump as a result of the January 6 uh Uh, insurrection and his comments then just talk us through the what what have you decided how was the decision made so what was the kind of process of decision making and then kind of why so let's kind of start with what have you decided so
1: what we've decided in in response to the oversight boards judgment which they which they published uh, a month ago um, where they said very clearly this independent panel of very distinguished folk they said very clearly two things in effect they said that we were right, Facebook was right, and within our rights to suspend Donald Trump because of the, the sheer gravity of what happened um, on January the 6th. Uh, namely, he was praising uh, people um, who were, were committing acts of violence, which led to five deaths, which led to you know Donald, Donald Trump's own vice president, who was you know, in the Capitol, uh, there to certify the outcome of the election, cowering for his life. Uh, that we were right in those exceptional circumstances to, to suspend him. But, but here's the big but, but that we were wrong to do so indefinitely and without any clear uh, due process and set of standards uh, go- governing the, the penalty that we, we applied. And so what uh, we have decided is the following, that we have now developed a set of penalties, what we call in the, Jargon in an enforcement protocol for these very rare occasions, and I hope they will remain very, very rare, where prominent public figures, um, government leaders, politicians, and others are using their presence on our platform to actively praise and foment violence while that violence is still ongoing. I mean, I don't think. I mean, I think the, candidly, we never foresaw that we would need an enforcement protocol to, 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 to lay out penalties uh, 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 for that situation. We've now done so, and we, we are, we're we publishing a scale of penalties ranging from suspension for one month uh, up to the most serious uh, penalty for the most um, egregious uh, violations, which is a suspension from our services for two years. And we think the circumstances of January, the deaths, the disruption, the clearly the attempt to uh, hijack and interrupt the peaceful transfer of power after, uh, you know, after a democratic election. Uh, we think that the events in early January justify the imposition of the highest level, highest tier of penalty. So we are suspending Donald Trump for two years from Facebook's uh, apps. Uh, the date of the start date of that uh, starts from the point at which the violation occurred in January, so through till uh, you know the very beginning of, of 2023. Um, and we think that's justified because of the gravity of what happened in January. We hope that it strikes the right balance between, between uh, the proportionality of that penalty reflecting the gravity of the, the violation, the deterrence that it will deter him and indeed anyone else to in similar situations of doing something similar on our platforms, but also not permanently removing his ability to express himself on uh, on our services going forward, which is a choice which other social media companies have taken. We feel that would be, you know, n- not something that we, we choose to do in this, in this instance. So we're trying to strike the balance between those different pressures. I'm acutely aware that with everything to do with, Donald Trump, and perhaps to do with US politics at the moment, anything we do in this space is going to be criticised from, on the one hand, people who think that Donald Trump should never be allowed back on social media on Facebook, and others who believe he should be back on from next Tuesday. What we are trying to do, which is our duty, and it's my duty as, in a sense, the person who has to lead on this within Facebook, is to uh, set out, as we, we as we do in great detail, what that enforcement protocol is why we think it is fair, proportionate, and how we intend to apply it in a consistent way going forward. Uh, The only other thing I should add is that we will, because I think many people will say, well, hang on a minute, what happens in two years time if Donald Trump comes back on Facebook and just tries to do it all over again? So we're accompanying this announcement with a clear uh, ladder of sanctions up to and including, in the most extreme cases, permanent removal from Facebook, such that when he returns to to Facebook, there are clear sanctions which will apply rapidly uh, if he if he or indeed anybody else seeks to try and repeat these violations. So that's our approach. It's one which we've devoted a lot of thought to, and, and, and obviously invested a lot of time in, and, and obviously we have s- sought to um, act as as sort of faithfully and as um, and as considered a fashion to the to the comments and criticisms and recommendations. Were made by the oversight board, and will it now go back to the oversight board? Does
0: this is this something they will have to not not, not,
1: not by us, not by Facebook? I mean, if, no. If,
0: if, if you've decided. Cover. You've made that, you've is, made the that decision. is our
1: position. I mean, I mean to be very clear, the the Facebook other uh, the, the Facebook oversight board said in no uncertain terms, Facebook, you now need to decide. You need to develop proper standards and rules and procedures. That is what we've done, and you need to then decide within the context of those new procedures and those new penalties which one you're going to apply in this instance uh, you know there were people who hoped that the oversight board would make that decision for us they didn't do that they chose they're perfectly entitled to to in a sense provide the criticism uh, provide us with guidelines about what we needed to do uh, and then in a sense uh, ask us to take up our responsibility and impose the penalty in the way that um, in a way that i've just described
0: yeah, they, they uh, kind of kicked it back to you. And, and I think it's worth underlining the fact that this decision will get such attention underlines the changed environment we're in. One, the reach that Facebook and other social media companies have now and the extraordinary political moment that we're in. I mean, I was thinking, imagine if George W. Bush had been kicked off MySpace in 2003 or 2004 it's hard to imagine that anybody... First of all, imagine that he would have done anything to justify that and be hard to imagine if anyone would have cared. Whereas now, of course, you've got two unprecedented, uh, two things that are unprecedented here. One, a president saying things that could justify this kind of action. That's not something anyone was ready for, include, of course, including you. Yeah. Um, but secondly, the, your platform is so powerful that who gets to be on it uh, is such a critical decision for... Not only for you, but for our democracy and for the kind of the movement of information and political speech. This must have been difficult for you because I know that you have a very strong conviction that good or bad, people are entitled to hear from their politicians. Now they can hear from them directly. And if they're lying or dangerous or stupid or whatever you want to think, or the opposite, that we're entitled to hear that. And in some ways, getting rid of these mediating elite influences was a great step forward. And then we could judge. Clearly, the guy's a dangerous idiot. I'm not going to vote for him. But there's a line, and that line is around incitement. That line is around violence. Talk a bit about how you see that line.
1: Yes, and, and I should stress, I mean, all the big social media companies, notably Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, have all taken subtly different approaches. So Twitter have said, some time ago now, and let's remember, Donald Trump used Twitter, in a sense, as his principal megaphone. And he would often, in a sense, just, or his team would simply just duplicate his tweets onto Facebook. But they've they've sort of permanently banished him, regardless of, you know, behaviour or regardless of future circumstances. YouTube have said they will restore his ability to use YouTube when the conditions allow. And we, in a sense, in response to this independent adjudication from the Oversight Board, are taking a subtly different approach, which is, here is our set of penalties. We're imposing the most serious penalty because of the gravity of what happened in early January, and that means that uh, Donald Trump will not be able to use our our services for two years from the uh, from you know from the point at which that violation occurred at the beginning of this year. Um, so, so, that's interesting in in itself that the, the companies are taking subtly different approaches. But but you're right that that you know we are very sensitive at Facebook to the widespread criticism that you heard, interestingly, you heard it more outside the United States than perhaps arguably inside the United States. You heard it from global leaders as diverse as the president of Mexico, Angela Merkel in Germany, President Macron saying, we don't like Donald Trump, but we're very uneasy that a private company has the power to permanently silence um, or indefinitely silence a a political leader, whatever you think about it. And, And I think we've really taken that to heart, that we need to act proportionately And that's why we haven't chosen to say that he he, he has a permanent ban. I mean, that that may occur in the future if he were to repeat these violations. Um, But for now, we've said no, we'll impose the heaviest penalty we can under our existing or or new uh, new rules. Um, But but we think that giving private companies the, the power as a commercial entity to sort of permanently banish someone from from you know significant parts of online discourse is a very significant step. Um, at, at the end, you know, American democracy doesn't belong to Silicon Valley; it belongs to the American people, and it's the legislators and politicians of this country who, in the end, you know, have to govern the rules that that, that, that prevail. And that's why we 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 constantly say it's far far better in the long run for legislators and regulators to take these decisions, not for us to have had to set up our own oversight board and for me now to be talking to you and others about our own rules. But but those rules don't exist. Those laws don't exist. And I candidly don't expect they will anytime soon, not least under the strictures of the First Amendment in the US. So so in a sense, we're having to do all of this and we're holding ourselves to account through the creation of this independent entity and then through the transparency of the things I'm talking to you about now, how we're developing our own rules and how we're applying them. Because there is this vacuum in, in in democratically established norms around around all of this um, uh, space, and, and who knows? Maybe in the next few years, it won't be for people like me on behalf of tech companies to you know try and fill in the details. This will actually be back to where I think it actually belongs, which was with which is with democratically elected lawmakers.
0: But that's the weird thing, of course, because you say having to do this, and in one sense, of course. You don't have to do anything or justify anything. You're a private company. So the having to is not the result of legal regulation. In fact, you're in the weird position of constantly writing pieces saying, please regulate us. Here's how you think you could regulate us. You know, it's very unusual to see an industry constantly going to Washington, begging for regulation. But you have to, from a moral perspective, because you have a very serious amount of power now. You have epistemic, political power, and so you have to because it really matters what you decide. And so you're ending up in this quasi position where, on the one hand, you're not a private company that no one really cares what you do, right, Trump or not, but nor are you actually properly regulated, and so you're 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 in this weird intermediate position. So you've created these weird intermediate forms of governance, like the oversight board, like the the rules you yeah. just described.
1: Yes, y- yes. Th- though I should stress, um, there there is, and and you'll like this as a biographer of J.S. Mill. I mean, there is an underlying and enduring principle, which is people are free to use Facebook to express themselves. And by the way, when I say express themselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, it, it, you don't want Mark Zuckerberg to be the thought police. You know, eliminating anything that's sort of any adjective and adverb that's considered to be untoward. No one wants that. But 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 crucially. In line with the kind of famous liberal J.S. Mill harm principle, if you use Facebook, and this is all, you know, this has been the case for some years now, to, to inflict harm on others, then the company is entitled to say, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, you can't do that. You can't do that. where, where it gets complicated for a private company is that, of course, one person's hate speech that should be eliminated is another person's Rights to offend, or you know, free expression. The other thing, of course, is that you know what you deem to be harmful is often in the eye of the beholder. So, for instance, when I go to Scandinavia, I'm often roundly berated by Scandinavian politicians who say, "Why on earth do you, as a, a, on behalf of this prudish American company, not allow us?" Small L liberal Swedes to post nude pictures of ourselves on our on our on our freewheeling Baltic summer holidays and in the sauna.
0: The the I mean, these the Swedes yeah, are always yeah, doing these,
1: that. Yeah, the Swedes are the Fids, whatever, jumping, jumping joyously in and out of their 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 their, their saunas, yeah. uh, uh, you know, um, without a, without a without any piece of clothing on, and um, and then and then I said, well, no, because we we think you know, which is obviously right, that that, that allowing people to distribute nudity would be. Harmful, very, very harmful, egregiously so. Um, uh, but And also, here's the thing that like, gets very complicated, is when consensus shifts. And I'll give you a very good recent example. There was what appeared to us to be something close to a scientific consensus until really too, relatively recently that there was no way that COVID could have been manufactured by humans, that it must have been a bat in a cave or someone, or someone ate it in a, in a wet market and so on and so forth. And then suddenly, and we have... And so we, you know, we're a tech company. We're not. We're not. We're not epidemiologists. We don't know anything about how viruses spread. So we said, "Oh well, we better reflect that in our rules." So we said, we, "We're going to, you know, we're going to remove really, you know, aggressive claims that this was kind of, you know, purposely concocted or accidentally concocted by, by humans." Uh, and that and that was backed by lots of hmm. letters from scientists to the Lancet and to Nature, and suddenly that shifted. Something that shifted and suddenly the scientists started saying, well, hang on, maybe it is. And now the US government is saying, so we then said, oh, well, hang on a minute. We probably need to draw the line somewhere else. The point I'm making to you is that I think there was an enduring simple principle, which is harm. You cannot use our platform. And I think that was clearly and and egregiously violated by Donald Trump uh, in early January. He clearly used not only just us, but other platforms, to praise people who are committing acts of violence in the seat of American democracy. People died. It was an attempt to disrupt American democracy. It was clear harm. And I think the Oversight Board recognised that. Um, But in other cases, whether it's nudity, whether it's what claims you do or don't allow about the origins of a virus, that's really tricky. And and that's why we consult so widely with, with experts, because... We can't always be the best judge and jury of where the harm line is best drawn.
0: Sure. And actually, what it means, of course, is that you do become very legalistic. And so, you know, you do have these rules around not nudity, but what about informational Uh, content around looking for breast cancer, for example. And so when is it allowed? And so before you know it, you're interested, you you can't avoid getting into, as soon as you start establishing rules, there'll be exceptions and so on. But I'm glad you raised the COVID one, because I wonder if in retrospect, that wasn't a great example of why one, one should allow speech right i mean the the million argument is you have to allow these eccentric voices because guess what sometimes the eccentrics turn out to be right it's one of the arguments for free speech and so you've got these crazy people over here saying well you know what covid might have been man-made nope gonna ban that turns out they might have been right and so in retrospect that feels like that was that you overdid it for for, because of political pressure um and now it's kind of having to be undone I, i i don't i'm not sort of trying to Accuse you know, of getting it wrong i'm just no, trying to say, look it's a very it shows you how difficult yeah. this balance is to strike because if you hadn't taken it down you would have been criticized but now turns out yeah. the crazy people as they seem then maybe not so crazy after all yeah
1: no i, th- I think i think that's totally fair I, I, I don't i don't for one moment want to suggest that facebook has got some monopoly wisdom where to draw this line and that's why we draw these lines as carefully as we can We tend to, and Mark Zuckerberg, I think, has been admirably clear about this over a very, very long period of time. We err on the side of free expression, if in doubt, err on the side of free expression. We don't always get it right. We have to make ourselves available to independent external expertise. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why I actually think it's a kind of good thing that in the vast majority of cases, the oversight board has heard so far, the oversight board has said, no, Facebook, you've taken down too much content, put it back up even when it might offend X or might offend Y. But don't underestimate the remorselessness of the pressure coming from the other direction. I mean, I, I, you know, not an hour goes by without an article somewhere saying that we're not taking down enough content. We should be taking more and more and more and more and more. And quite rightly, governments, including the US government, put huge pressure on us privately and publicly to do more, not least as the, as the, the world is um, na- navigating this pandemic, to make sure that that, that Facebook is, uh, is a is an avenue for 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 good information, which it is, by the way, you know millions of people um, working out how to get vaccinated through 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 Facebook. We've got this COVID information center, of authoritative information. I think over two billion people have already u- you know used it around around the world. But but, but you're right that this is a good example where sometimes the ground shifts you know under your feet and you're suddenly thinking harm. Oh, maybe we didn't get that right, and we should have erred on the side of caution all along.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's uh, you know it's the counter example in some ways to the Trump example where you have clear harm. and actually you mentioned Mill, but Mill's famous uh, example of when you should not allow free speech is when someone's inciting a mob against corn dealers in front of the corn dealer's house. And right. actually that's, you know, translated into 21st century speak. What that's is tweeting and Facebook messages that are insightful to, at the time it's taking place and oh, so right. on. So it's not like the, the it's the equivalent of being in front of the corn dealer's house.
1: And, and by the way, just on that, it's, it's very important that you you underline that. And I hadn't realized that in, in Mill's description, it, it's, it's actually a amazing how relevant that still is today. It shows perhaps what an extraordinary figure he was. The, the, the rules that I'm talking about today, the enforcement protocols, to use the technocratic jargon, apply specifically when high profile individuals um, say things, praise, you know, individuals, rioters, while the violence is ongoing. And that, because that's the thing that we hadn't anticipated, right. that anyone would do that in that position. And in that, in that sense, of course, the Oversight Board was quite right. And that's what was so egregious what happened. Was happening in January is that you know the, the violence was ongoing. It was kind of pretty obvious that something was something yeah. was kicking off in the capital. It was extremely worrisome. Yes, um, and, and that's why we have imposed the, the, the most the most um, the most stringent penalty in this case.
0: The oversight board has been described by opponents as a kind of Potemkin village to to hide what's really going on. Mark Zuckerberg described it as the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I, to me, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Social Mobility Commission, to use a reference that only four people will understand, but two of whom are, are on this call, in the sense that it's a commitment device, it is independent. This was something we set up at the UK government. The details yeah. are not that relevant, but the point was that it was autonomous, independent, and it held us to account. And as we'd set it up, and almost immediately it started to annoy us and make our life difficult, which was sort of the yeah. point. But you've also talked about the the Oversight Board as a sort of embryonic potential yeah. regulator more broadly. And so is this an attempt to sort of start doing outside of government, what the government isn't doing. And so I say, look, you want something like this, not just for Facebook, but more generally. So can you envisage a future where it does develop? I mean, imagine a different kind of Congress that says, okay, we do need to regulate actually that oversight board thing yeah. seems to work pretty well. Let's use that as a model for an industry regulator.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing I'd say is, I mean, um, I fully expected almost anything that, you know, is now associated with Facebook is immediately condemned by a chorus of folk and music. Oh, well, there's it, got to be something untoward about it. There's got to be a plot. It's got to. It, it really, it kind of really does what it says on the tin. I mean, we put $130 million irretrievably in, in a fund run by a trust. That, you know that, that that oversee the governance of this. That's but not very much. That's uh, not
0: very much for you, though. I mean, that's, that well, sounds it's like not, a lot.
1: It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly enough to get a to get a meaningful oversight board uh, up and running. That's for sure. It's got you know ex uh, prime ministers, uh, eminent scholars and jurists, uh, former journalists, human rights campaigners, a Nobel Prize winner. These are not. These aren't patsies. These are people who have very very. Um, you know, established reputations for being highly independent themselves. They come from a huge mix of backgrounds, including ideological backgrounds from conservative to, to liberal. They're, they're entirely independent of, of Facebook. But but having said all of that, I mean, I fully expect that everyone would immediately say, oh, no, it's just a, it's just, it's just a setup. I don't think anyone who actually reads their decisions could ever reasonably claim that they're behaving like patsies, far from it. And just look at the the, the The very tough terms of some of their criticisms um, uh, um about us um in the in the trump case um, but to, but to your question, look this is just a start. no one's done this before. No other tech companies tried this in an absolute ideal world, but'm you know I'm probably thinking several years ahead, I would love to imagine that maybe hey why maybe if, if other social media companies think that that's a model that works for them. That this oversight board could mutate into something which can apply decisions not just to Facebook but to other social media outlets that 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 face very similar dilemmas uh, to us. And as you say, if, if legislators think that it's a good working model for accountability and transparency, maybe they can rely, rely on it or incorporate it or refer to it in their own legislation. I think there's a whole, you know, range of options here, and I, and I certainly hope that, you know, in five years' time, if we were to have this conversation, this landscape will be, will be you know, populated by other means by which uh, companies like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and so on, TikTok and so on, can be properly held to account. And, and I look, I think there are, I think there are sort, of three base, there's sort of three value-based pillars in all of this, which, which all, in a sense, have to sort of jostle for space next to each other. One is voice. Free expression. Just you know, don't forget, as I said earlier, the remarkable, remarkable empowering effect. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a poor student in Guatemala or a fancy lawyer or banker in Wall Street. You can use Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, Facebook exactly the same way. It's paid for through through ads, so you'd have to pay for it, pay for it yourself. It, regardless of your 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 means, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, wherever you live. I think that that's retain that that the beauty, the sense. A thrilling, uh, enriching um, a beauty of, 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 of self-expression on that scale. But offset that against harm, the harm principle. Yes, you're free to use these services, but not if you seek to inflict real-world harm on others. And then the third major value is accountability. Make sure that that the way that voice and harm are balanced you know, off against each other, the, the decisions that the company takes are properly accountable. And I think in that spirit, the Oversight Board is a very significant but I very much hope not the last step in a journey in making uh, the decisions that companies like Facebook make more transparent and more accountable over time.
0: What do ask? My last question I want to ask is about the internal politics um, here. Um, I think there's an impression on the outside that Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg was somewhat more libertarian in his instincts, and that you're more liberal. And I make the distinction deliberately. A liberal will understand you do need regulation, that there are trade-offs, that there are values at stake. Because your discussions now must be like a political philosophy seminar. I'd love to be in them. And so, so how does that play out? Have you pulled Mark to a more liberal position?
1: No, this was a journey that was happening anyway. And in, in a sense, I suppose, but you should ask them, the, the, the reason that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg reached out to someone like me was, A, that they were, which I think is a good thing, I, I would say this, wouldn't I, you know, wanted to be open to a non-American, you know, perspective. Um, 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 a, and secondly, you know, in a sense, my record spoke for itself because I was a public figure for 20 years myself. They, they knew that I had a very, very staunch, still retain a very staunch belief in, in, in free expression um, but that there are, that of course, there are limits to, to free expression. Free expression is not anarchy. Uh, just as J.S. Mills said, you know, people who wanted to, in his day, protest against corn dealers were perfectly free to do so through the press and, and publicly. But they, they, they're not entitled to whip up a, an excited mob you know, gathering in, in, in the front of the house of the corn dealer, threatening to burn it down. That's that's a threat to real world, real time harm, which we are entitled in the name of free expression to act against. And that's exactly the same principle that we've applied uh, in, in Facebook, oddly enough, you know, however many gen- generations later after J.S. Mill wrote, wrote those those words to to what happened in the U.S. Capitol in, in, in this instance involving Donald Trump.
0: The decisions might be made in boardrooms as much as courts now and so on, but some of these principles uh, still apply. So that was a, gr- uh, a great note on which to end this conversation. Nick, I just want to thank you so much for coming on Dialogues. Thanks again.
1: Thank Excellent. you. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places and send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.